Off the ball. The second biggest cheer was Ronaldo warmed up. The biggest cheer was when Ronaldo came on the pitch. There is still this fixation of Ronaldo is coming onto the pitch and he buys into Subscribe that. now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. On Off the Ball. With Sky. Watch Premier League, Women's Super League, EFL, Scottish Premiership and much more. Live on Sky Sports. I'm prepared to end it my can. Well, do it then. Do it then. What about your start to the game? I was, it wasn't bad, was it? <laughs> Why should it be an honest answer be a mistake? How can a modern day manager not have a mobile phone? Why should he? Oh. Hello. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Richie McCormack. I'm from Off The Ball and I'll be hosting tonight's event. Uh, you are all here for the Rodfather himself, Roddy Collins. Are there, any, uh, are there any Bose supporters in the house? Are there any Shells fans in the house? No. Are there any Rovers fans that didn't bother going to Tala? Just a couple, that's all right. Uh, and a Cork City fan down the front here, Mr. Spike O'Sullivan, thank you very much for that. Uh, Roddy's going to be along with us shortly, but I thought we should kick off the night uh, with the man who has helped Rod put this book together, uh, a man who has more bestsellers than Jackie Collins and Jesus Christ put together. Uh, would you please put your hands together for Mr. Paul Howard? It should be noted that Paul, for those of you who are interested in the crowd, uh, who have seen these cutouts on stage, uh, which I'm told won't be available in Smith's for Christmas, uh, Paul has already snaffled the one behind him as well because he's going to miss Roddy that much. Um, <laughs> That's actually true. It is. <laughs> First thing he said, I'm taking that cutout. Um, Paul, the, the question usually when you, know, you have somebody who's helped somebody write uh, an autobiography or has ghostwritten something is, um, why? would you uh, want to put this book together? After reading it, you kind of get the impression, why wouldn't you want yeah. to do a Roddy book? It's kind of been sitting there waiting for somebody to do it, really. I've always said that the Roddy Collins story is one of the great unwritten sports books of our time. And I've known Roddy for over 30 years. Um, I covered, I was a boxing writer in the, in the late 80s, early 90s, and I covered Stephen's career. And I remember the first time I ever met Roddy, I was in... It was in the, um, what, the, the National Stadium in the Ringside Club, uh, which was the bar attached to the National Stadium. And it was after Steve beat Danny Morgan, which was a world title eliminator in November, or December 1991. And Roddy was standing, holding court. And a lot of, a lot of you here know Roddy, so you know what that looks like, you know? He's, He's a centre-of-the-room kind of guy, and he's standing there, and people are surrounding him like satellites. And he told this joke, and I'll never, ever forget the joke. I still, I still tell it myself to this day. He said his next-door neighbour had got a dog, and he asked him, what, what's, what's the dog's name? And Roddy said, he's, uh, the neighbour said, he's called Ironmonger. He said, why do you call him Ironmonger? <clears throat> he said, because I gave him a kick in the bollocks, and he made a bolt for the door. And, and that's my introduction to Roddy Collins. And he was like, like he was like a film star and a stand-up comedian, all, you know, rolled into one. And he's the center of attention. Everybody's hanging on every word. And then he sang, you know, from the candy store on the corner to, to finish off the night, you know. So he just had charisma. And then I got to know him really well through um, covering Stephen's career. And I was a freelance journalist at the time, and I didn't have any money. I was completely skint. 
and I'd go and I'd cover these world title fights and I was putting the trip together myself. So Aidan Cooney from 98FM would give me 50 quid to go on the breakfast show every single morning and talk about the lead into the fight. And then I got, got money from the Examiner and the Tribune and a few other papers. But I didn't have enough, I never had enough money for a hotel room. So I'd sort of, I'd sleep in the lobby at the hotel in a, in a chair, you know? And then the Collins family used to call me the Milky Bar Kid. Because I had these roundy, I had round kind of, what I thought were John Lennon glasses, but they were Milky Bar Kid glasses. And I used to wear, and I used to wear cowboy boots. And, uh, well, there's a I, problem. I mean, I, I, well, I look at pictures now and I go, yeah, I, I would bully that kid, like, you know? And, uh, but they used to say, Caroline, Roddy's wife, who's here, uh, she used to say, I don't think that young lad has anywhere to stay tonight. And the families used to take pity on me. So Roddy would say, get up to our room. And they'd put me on the sofa in their room or sometimes they'd pull the mattress off the bed and put me on the, uh, on the floor and everything, you know. And the reason I did the book, I suppose, was I owe Roddy and Caroline about 15 grand in back money for hotels. <laughs> the whole thing of family, like, really comes through in the book. And the, the, Roddy takes everybody in that he meets and treats them almost like he's, like, their best friend from the first minute. Like, I've seen that down through the years, working and off the ball. He'll, he'll mm. talk to everybody at the same level. You obviously got in with the family as well, and family comes across massively in the book as a huge thread and a massive thing of import for Roddy. Yeah, they're, they're just one of those wonderfully warm Dublin families. You know, I, I come from quite uh, a similar background to Roddy. Roddy thinks I'm a Southsider just because I come from Ballybrack, but <laughs> Roddy's never seen Ballybrack, like, you know? Uh, but we, we do, we're, we're both from working, work, big working class families, kind of male families mostly. Um, so, but, but the warmth of the family, that's the, that's the lovely thing about the Collins family. Like, you know, it's just, they, they, you know, once they take you in, once they trust you, you're kind of, it's like, it's like the circle of trust, you know, they take you in. It's very difficult to get out. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's much easier to get in than it is to get out. But once you're in, they, you know, you're in forever. And, you know, Roddy and I, we stayed in touch periodically over the years. Like, I remember Stephen, Stephen fought for the European middleweight title against Sumbu Kalambe in a, a, a small... Uh, a small town in the north of Italy called Verbania, and it's on, it's on Lake Maggiore. And it was, it, was, it was just a beautiful place. But years later, uh, I was back there for a wedding. And the first thing I did when I got there was I picked up the phone and rang Roddy because we played football together. Uh, it's the only time I, I played in Europe was um, the, the, Co <coughs> the Collins family played against the local media. In this, and, and we're, we're invited. We thought we were going to be playing on a roundabout, like a patch of grass, and the media bust us to this stadium. And all these Italian reporters got out of the bus and they'd all the gear on, and they, they were all wearing the same stuff, which, which was pretty impressive to me. They all had jerseys and shorts and everything, they, the hair, and they were tanned and everything. They were like models, they were like runway models. And we got out of our bus. Uh, Packy Collins is here tonight, like, you know, he would have been probably one of our best players and he was terrible. But, <laughs> but I, I played, I played centre midfield with, with, with Roddy and Roddy ran the match and I was his deputy with my, in cowboy boots 
and, and Milky Bar Kid glasses, you know. And, uh, and we won, which is, which is amazing. The process of writing this book, I'd imagine, would have been very tricky because you have to get them to sit still and keep yeah. a straight thought and keep a straight story going for a prolonged period of time, enough for you to get enough to build up, you know, and around a story and put it in the book. Yeah. How tricky a process was the sitting down and, and keeping them uh, locked in a chair for an hour or more? Well, I, I just love Roddy's company. So, so that wasn't difficult enough. I mean, I just decided at the start, just let him go, just let him talk. And then it's my job to decide what, what stories are relevant and, and which ones aren't. But the thing with Roddy is he builds up a head of steam when he's talking and he tells stories. Uh, you know, Roddy's stories are like, are, are, are like after-dinner anecdotes. You know, they all have a beginning, a middle and an end and they've been polished and they're fit for publication straight away. So a lot of what I was doing was just transcription. Um, but... Roddy has a, has a really good sense of what's relevant and what's, what's not relevant. But those days were a joy. I mean, we spent five months every single Friday from nine in the morning until five in the afternoon. Roddy would just talk and I would listen and record. And I missed it at the end. Like, you know, we finished in January and I was having, it was like withdrawal symptoms from Roddy. Like, you know, and Mary, my wife, like she used to say like, you know, are you missing your friend? <laughs> I say, yeah. I'm just going to listen to I'm just going to listen to the tape about about his time at Carlisle. Uh, Would you ring him up then and just go, Roddy? Have you any more stories? I just want to talk to you for another five minutes, yeah. please. I mean, the great joy about this about writing the Rodfather was it's it's like no other sports book. Most I read a lot of sports autobiographies and most of them are published because somebody has won the Six Nations or somebody has won the World Cup or somebody has won an Olympic medal or, you know. There's no Rocky movie ending to this book. It's the story of a journeyman footballer and a journeyman manager and a brilliant human being who has just this incredible incredibly colourful life story with lots, lots of lessons, which he was the slowest to learn in many, many cases. But it's a, I keep saying to people, it's like a Forrest Gump story because it goes everywhere. You kind of think, this story cannot take any more twists and turns. And it's 20 chapters long, and I was starting chapter 19, and I'm thinking, I still haven't written about his heart attack. I haven't written about him going going bust for the second time. I haven't written about him nearly losing the house. I haven't written about him uh, coaching travellers in bare-knuckle boxing. And I think, you've only got 5,000 words left, like, you know? It's, it is, it's an amazing story. Like, it just takes in... Well, it takes in 62 years of a life, but, but, but the amount of living he did in those 62 years is amazing. Was there anything within that story that surprised you, even? As somebody who knows him. Um, I mean, if, just being around Roddy just was surprises every single day, you know? <laughs> I mean, I didn't know, I didn't really know much about his playing career. Um, I mean, Roddy would have told me about his playing career quite a lot over the years, but we'd usually be in a bar after a fight and, uh, um, you know, it, it, it kind of wasn't the time for me to listen, you know? But, but you know, playing, playing football with George Best as a teenager at Fulham, um, going on trials with Arsenal, the Arsenal of Stapledon, Brady, O'Leary. And I don't think I appreciated until I started writing this book just how close Roddy was to being Frank Stapledon, 
to, to being Tony Cascarino, like, you know, a big uh, centre forward who put himself around, could score goals, and, but, but broke his leg at 19 years of age. And, 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 you know, players break legs now and often they're never the same again, but they're usually back within a year and Roddy really never got back for three years. So, so from the, the age of 19 to 22, he was missing. And I didn't really know about that part of his career. But to be honest, Richie, every single day... Uh, hanging out with Roddy was was an education. <laughs> is there a, regr- a regret that you didn't leave space for a volume two? Oh, there are, is clearly space for a volume two anyway. But yeah. were you like halfway through writing this book and thought, I really should have committed to two here rather than one? Listen, there's two more in him. Like you know, <laughs> I mean, like I, 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 I like Roddy's Roddy's only sixty two, and he said to me a few months ago, like I'm looking at Claudia Ranieri. And, like, he's still doing it at 74, whatever, you know? So, listen, this, this is phase one of Roddy's career. Like, you know, the 62 years he's lived, and he does. He still has ambitions in the game, and it's great to hear him talk so passionately about football still. And that's one, that was one of the other joys about, about writing the book with him. He loves the game. He loves players. Um, he loves the personalities, you know? He's... I, in my view, highly underrated as a as a football tactician as well. I think he's a brilliant football tactician. Uh, but listen, you know, Roddy doesn't think his life and career is over, as he'll tell you. You know, there's loads left in the tank. Yeah, there certainly seems to be. Yeah, he's, he's he's dropped a hint that there might be even more left in that tank. The bug might have bitten again. Roddy has specified that he wanted a theme song for the night, and we were toying with the idea of. The, the Godfather theme because obviously you know the book is the Rodfather and Roddy likes to dress in nice suits and all that there was also talk of uh, you know um, the Rocky music because clearly Roddy has a, a massive you know, a boxing background and there's a boxing side to his family and he could well have been uh, a boxer himself Roddy specified differently Roddy has asked for a little bit of audience participation if you could join in in the song to lead him on stage that song is called Roddy Collins is a Wanker. <laughs> he will tell you himself that he has asked for this. So I'd like to bring on stage the man we're all here to see. But first, I want to hear the chant Roddy Collins. Roddy Collins is a wanker song I've ever heard. <laughs> a little bit more gusto on that one, you know? They're singing or that I, outside the nursing home window. That's the kind of... One, the, I, I was singing her in the mirror and I get ready. <laughs> I'll leave me phone down. It's on just in case bows ring, you know? <laughs> Torlock, come on now, sort this one now. You've done it 20 years ago. <laughs> and by the way... If you're worried or wondering why I'm dressed like this, I like to represent the company, so I dress like a penguin. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thanks for coming. Uh, where on earth do we begin with all of this? We should begin, actually, I suppose, at the very end of this process, because today is the day. A lot of people are obviously very excited to get the physical copy of the book and to you know, get home and leaf through that and possibly give it to somebody as a present. You have done the audiobook 
for this torture. day. And you have just gotten to the last chapter today. Torture is what you torture. call it. Torture. Like, I mean, the only book I ever read in my life was Peter and Jane, book one. That was in Force Babies. <laughs> so suddenly, Dublin 7 knocks into Dublin 4. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, how are you, you know? And I, 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 walk, I walked in the park one day with Caroline. I needed glasses, right? But I wouldn't give in. A fella comes jogging down, and I grabbed him. Jesus, Toller, how are you, my old pal? I thought it was John Toll. It was some chap from the country just out jogging. <laughs> he's, he's a spacer, he is, right? So when it was written, as you, if you have the book, when it's written in the book, it's, uh, how are you, John, my old pal? So I'm reading off the screen. How are you tall on me, old pal? Now go back to the start. How are you, John, my old pal? I said, hold on, we need to have a meeting. So I jacked up three times. So we came to a bit of an agreement. We'll mix Dublin 4 with Dublin 7, right? Because if it went with the Dublin 4 one, I couldn't put my face out of the door again in cabinet. <laughs> So we, we, we got there in the end, Paul. We, we got there in the end. Uh, Rod's been on the honey and lemon and he's given me that trick as well. So we're all naked here on stage this evening. The honey and lemon to keep the Tom voices. Jones gave me that. No, he did. That's Tom. not in the book, though, is it? Like, there's all these oh, people and all these people. It's Tom to book two. <laughs> <laughs> he told me, he said, Rod, this is when I was in, I think it was Vegas. And I was having a meal with Caroline. Right? And another couple. And Tom Jones was over at another table. And, and my dad loved him, and I wanted to meet him. So I wrote on a napkin. I said, Tom, I idolize you, and my wife does, and my father did. So when you're leaving, could you please just tap me on the shoulder and ask me how I am? <laughs> so in the meantime, another couple of cameras trying to impress. So anyway, Tom gets up, finishes me, he's on to rise, he's walking out, and he taps me on the shoulder. I said, Tom, I'm busy eating, I'll see you again. <laughs> Believe that, and I'll sell you swampland in Carlisle. It's, uh, it's very hard to comprehend those two worlds of Las Vegas and Tom Jones to go back to Animo Terrace, where you came from originally, and oh, everybody kind of wedged into the house in there and, and the really special upbringing that you seem to have that comes through in the book. Well, Carp is a special place. Like, like all communities, we were close. You know, because nine in a two-bedroom house, they're going to be close. But the, the community, the spirit of community, the neighbourly community, the, neighbor, the neighbourly deeds, you know, different things. Like, you know, my mother gave me a 10 bob note wrapped in a penny to bring up to my Auntie Betty. And it was in a penny because if you dropped it, it wouldn't blow away. My Auntie Betty would give it to someone else on the Wednesday. It was like a little bridge and all going around. But capital people were like that and still are to this day. A great community, Paul. Look, your body yeah. brack is the same yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, just a different <coughs> body brack where you it. And they sent around 50 pound notes, you know, <laughs> wrapped in a two pound coin. But no, it was, it, was, it was brilliant. It was great upbringing. We'd all sorts of characters. And I'm sure there's people in the, well, Pascal, he's the absolute ambassador for Cabaret. Pascal knows people in Cabaret to this day, right? That are 80, 90 years of age. And they're his best mates. He's an absolute cameraman to the car. So, yeah, it's great. It's, it was a brilliant community. Great people. 
how did you get involved with football then? Because, like, as you mentioned in the book, it was a very boxing-oriented family. Like, Stephen, obviously, who we'll get to later on, but your dad was the one who wanted to push everybody towards uh, the ring, I guess. Well, he didn't push us towards the ring. No, he just built a gym on the back of the bleeding house. <laughs> so, if you walked out the back, you had no choice. <laughs> you know what I mean? Someone was skipping, someone was hitting the back, or someone was sparring. But now, football... I mean, when I was a kid, we all played in the road, you know? And there was two great men, Tommy Miles and Joe Webb, and they ran the Tennis Association football team. And they picked me, and we went to Walkinstown. Now, that was like an away trip. That was like an overnight stay, you know? And we went out there, and we beat them, and I scored a goal, and I got the buzz for it. And then they came and said to me, man, Dad, he's, not, he's, not, he's a handy little footballer. And I progressed up to the, one of the most important people in my football career, Jimmy Brannigan. A man that took me to Stella Marinus. I don't know how Jimmy put up with me. And I know you're in here, Jim, and <laughs> I want to thank you for that. The only thing I won't thank you for, you started off a trend in my football life. Jimmy worked on Smith's crisps. And he gave us all crisps and peanuts. And I've been playing with peanuts ever since. <laughs> so that's your fault, Jimmy. <laughs> but no, so J Jimmy took me on. Believed him. He got a couple of trials in England. Came back. Got a very badly broken leg. Tried my best to get going again. And then the man that changed it all professionally was Turlock O'Connor. Yeah. Took a punt on me. Turlock. Broke his heart, but he took a punt. <laughs> Turlock comes, kind of comes across as a kind of fairy godfather throughout the course of the book. He kind of appears in your life when, you, I guess, you, you most need him. But going back to those trials, because that kind of network of Dublin scouts that was around at the time doesn't seem to be one that's there anymore. Things operate obviously differently, but there's yeah. people who could plug you into clubs over in England and say, I know a guy over here, I know a guy over there. Fulham was the first place where you were really Fulham, yeah, that was Dave O'Leary's father, Christy. He sent me to Fulham and I went over there and we knew nothing about contracts or just, I mean, we'd have played for nothing. We were just allowed to get the opportunity. So I remember going to Fulham anyway and uh, I was there I went with Paddy McCarthy, my old teammate and a neighbour of Carlet with Devney Gardens, and we were put in Richmond. Now, Cabra to Richmond, it's even Dublin Four wouldn't come up to the Richmond standards, you know. This was the bizzo where <coughs> you get red cabbage. I never I, I, I only thought the only thing Reds could eat was beetroot. <laughs> and I got that every day, my lunch, my ma gave me that every day. And he used to call me on the side, beetroot head. But anyway, we got we got to uh, to Fulham. It was brilliant, you know, just to see George Best in the flesh, Bobby Muir, legends of the game. It was just brilliant. But it was going on and on and on. And nothing was caught. I think I was getting £30 a week, and that was, I thought it was a contract. I mean, in my mind, I was a millionaire, but anyway. So, in the end, my dad came over to find out what was going on, and then he ended up going to Arsenal. A little bit more friendly there. John Devine was brilliant to me in Arsenal. And Frank Stavden was friendly as well. He looked after me. So... Got cracking on there, but look, I think I was a little bit too apologetic for being there. I came from a, I don't know, maybe maybe an insecure background in the football terms that when I got there, I was just so overawed. I mean, I was smashing fellas, and then I was apologising. <laughs> Doing that when I was 37. But that's the way it went, you know. Uh, but there is a story in whereby you don't really apologise to somebody in the Arsenal dressing room who decides to cross you and use a term that I guess a lot of people of your vintage and going over to London would have had to encounter from time to time over there. Well, the well you know what? He didn't cross me. He insulted me. And I was getting fed up at this stage and there was a lot of 
there was a lot of racism going on. Let's you still goes on, but it was there at the time. I remember in the showers after training one day, so the shower running, and he was in one. And I walked in and I said, is there anyone in that shower? He said, no, you dopey paddy. Right? And I said, what'd you say? He said, no, you dopey paddy. So we got a cabra uppercut right in the nose. <laughs> <laughs> a cabra a kiss, I should say. Bang! Right, right in his nose. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, whatever chance I had of getting a contract, I think it evaporated in that shower that day. So the, the boss called me and he said, not aggressive enough on the pitch, too aggressive in the shower. There's a flight waiting for you in Heathrow. And that was the end of that. That's the arsenal of like Don Howe and that kind of generation. Ah, Don Howe. Yeah, yeah Don, like I came at, Jimmy Brannigan was brilliant. Jimmy Brannigan's skill by manager was brilliant. He was, he was a tactician. Jimmy told me one day, I used to meet you off school and go down to, to, to Richmond Road, mark the pitch, try to court it with the, the lawnmower. You know the way? It was only a little garden lawnmower. You'd have two stripes done. By the time you got back there, that'd be that height. So you'd have to go back there. <laughs> so you'd never end a lawnmower job and you never got into school. But Jimmy said to me one day, who painted the goalpost? I said, I bunked off school and done it. I'm going to give you a bit of advice, he said. Paint the ball behind the goal. And every time you get that ball, or every time you get, you get the ball, just have a look. If you see that spot, just have a shot. And I did. I only scored two goals, Jimmy. <laughs> It was only a little ball. We'd no paint that day. But anyway, so I went over, I went over to Arsenal. And Don Hare was royalty. Absolute royalty. So I'm being told, we're playing this thing, right? Get the ball. Take it down. Knock it to him. He'll knock it to him. He'll knock it to him. And I'm going, I'll save all them problems. I'll just get knocked out there, right? Every ball that came out took a touch. Boom. Stop, stop, stop. So I faced Don Hare, who was, I think he was... Uh, a coach for England when they won the World Cup. Yeah, well, six, 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 and I said, Don, I said, my manager in Dublin, Jimmy Brannigan, didn't do it like that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he knew who Jimmy was. <laughs> and that was the end of me and Don. Hell yeah. Paul, was part of the, the attraction of doing Roddy the Book because there's a sense of a Dublin that has certainly, if not evaporated, then it has shrunk. Yeah. Was there a sense of wanting to capture that in the book? Yeah, and like the, the day we started writing the book, we went, uh, Roddy brought me around Cabra brought me around all the, uh, the, the, the streets of his childhood where he played football as a kid, where he robbed orchards, everything. You know, we, did the whole, we covered the whole of Cabra. And I didn't see one kid playing football in all that time. Not one. There was no street games. Like, we played football on the road when we were kids. There were fewer cars around. You know, you might play for 20 minutes and someone would shout, car! And then everyone stood back and let the car go by. Or you improvised around the car. You, if the ball went under it, you hooked it out with it. You know, yeah. maybe you say, taxi, taxi, taxi. And somebody had to hold off until you hooked the ball out. But there's none of that. That's all gone. And you can see, and it, it breaks my heart to see it, like signs around Cabra saying, no, no football games allowed. And so it is, it's a, part of, it's a part of Dublin. It's a part of childhood, I think, that, that has completely disappeared. So if anyone's playing football now, they're playing... They're playing on football pitches where they're being told, you know, we're playing a back, we're playing a back three this week, you know. Like nobody's, nobody seems to be playing improvisational games like we played. And if you look at like two of our greatest players uh, over the last sort of 20, 20, 25 years, Damien Duff and Robbie Keane, there's one thing stands out about them. They're street footballers, you know. All the tricks they had, all those little, you know, all the things that made them you know, at international level, you know, the little tricks, it was playing on the streets. 
are we in a better place now because of all that, Rods? Or Sorry? are we in a better place now because of all that? But like because things are more organised now, or is there a sense that there is something it's, very it's, serious it's been lost? hijacked by financial institutions, I would call them. You know, I won't name them because uh, Penguin doesn't cover me for this litigation. <laughs> for this litigation. But, no, it's been hijacked. It's a money game now. And I reckon in another 10 years, you could have empty stadiums and still have players on 500 grand a week. You know, so, and, and the, the street football stuff, but as well, when we were kids, I call it me cabra eye, right? I can see the girl out there, right? Can you see her? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, but your cabra eye. But kids go around like that now. They don't have the awareness. They don't think quick. And cabra, cabra and street football, cabra people and Dublin people, and street footballers think quick. And that's being coached. Now it's like... You pass to him, he passed him, he passed to him. He passed down, he passed it down. It's in the back of the net. And I remember one time, that nearly crept into Bowles, my double winning team. We were training one day. We'd done everything, everything was correct. We're ready to go. And there's always one that goes, boss, can I ask you a question? And he says, yeah. So Paul Bourne put his hand up and he goes, boss, yes, Bournesy. He said, you were doing a little thing there. He says, but if your man at right back gets the ball, and he pings it into him in the middle of the park. And he cushions it off to him and he dings it out to him. And he whips a ball in. He said, we're in trouble. I said, we're not, we're not playing Bladen Real Madrid. We're playing Longford. <laughs> 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 and that's a true story. I says, Paul, we're playing Longford Town. I'll go on home with you, please. You know? but, uh, but, that, but the difference in footballers was like, we improvised. We weren't told. Robots, and that's that's the problem. Tell us how through the game as well by managers and coaches and everyone else. You know, if that's the only Paul Burns story we're getting tonight, then he's getting away lightly. By the way, <laughs> um, tell us how you first got involved with Bowes. Then it was a Bowes of Billy Young, and it was uh, a really successful oh, team. First, when I played at Bowes, yeah, right. Um, well, Bowes was my team. You know, I lived in Animo. You could hear the Daily Mount roar. I used to watch Bowes all the time. I used to watch Torlock O'Connor, Johnny Fulham. Mick Smith, Eamon Gregg later on. But I loved going down to Bowes. And then when I was playing my schoolboy football with Jimmy, I was going to sign with Bowes at 17. And Jimmy said to me, Rod, I'm telling you now, he said, stick with youth football. It's the happiest time in your football life. And Jimmy Brannigan got that correct. So what I done was I played with Bowes on a Saturday in the reserves and for Jimmy on a Sunday for Stella Maris. And that was me involvement with Bowes. And then I grew into signing for them when I was 18. But when I signed, I didn't expect it was straight into the first team. But Torlock had left to go to Atlanta Town. So it was like, it was unbelievable just getting straight and playing in Europe at 19 years of age. Just turned 19. It was brilliant. You got to play away pretty soon into your career, away to Sporting Lisbon. That's right. got to be a, a massive, like, they're talking about like 60,000 people in the stadium in the Europeans eye. And there's you lot going out onto the pitch and having to listen to that roar. And you would have never heard anything well, like that Well, you know before. what? We went out to train and there must have been 10,000 people watching us training. And I'll never forget it. The day we arrived, we were told to go off and do a bit of shop. And there's a picture in the book where I'm sitting on the pier with Billy and all the, all the good boys, right? The altar boys, right? But there was a cohort of older players that went left. We went right. We were going out buying lollipops for their kids and whatever, you know. So we're all called in. There's no training tomorrow night. There's a storm due over. So you've got to train tonight. So the, the, the other fellas that have been in the pub, four or five points each, come back. 
<laughs> we went training. We forgot the training gear, we forgot the training balls. We deported the gear. We're out in Sporting Lisbon, and I'm putting him. One of them was goalkeeper. Billy always puts you into groups of four, and I put him to the three amigos. I swear to God, I was even embarrassed. It was fellas falling over the ball. So that was, that was it. And then we played anyway. I remember coming up the tunnel, right? And I was on a building site two days earlier. And in this tunnel, I come up out of the ground. I looked at the fellow beside me, and he was chiseled out of marble, right? <laughs> Oily black hair, big legs that size. And I was like some street origin, you know, <laughs> malnourished, with white skin, no muscles. <laughs> The shoulders of me jerseys down my elbows. Here, look at him. <laughs> He's marking me tonight. Good jays, I'm in serious trouble here, you know. But we went out and I remember distinctly coming out of the hole in the ground and the noise to me was like a jet plane taking off. That's how loud it was. And I loved it. I loved it. I thought, they're all here for me, right? <laughs> <laughs> how did they know I was going to play tonight, right? I remember, I remember Paddy Joyce. Joycey looked at me and he was shooting and he goes, oh, Jesus, right, oh, Jesus, look at that crowd. I said, don't worry, Joycey. We'll never see them again after tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I said, you won't have to worry about walking down Henry Street, getting slaughtered. They'll never be down Henry Street. But, so it was great. And the result was great and Billy was delighted. And I was delighted that he played me. And I got a Peter Bourne used to travel from the Times. And I remember, because of Jimmy Mind, Roddy Collins, the European deputy, was unperturbed by the magnitude of the occasion and has a fine future in professional football. And that, to me, was the compliment of all compliments. And I remember that night, I'll never forget, an old king is here, an old, no one knows football more than an old king of my book, right? Right? And I remember a ball come over my shoulder, right? And it bounced, and I'm one-on-one. -on -one. And I'm thinking, I'm going to be the king of cabaret. This is going to the top <laughs> corner, right? I'm going to be all over the Sunday one. I'm going to be all over the Independent Herald. Oh. But the time I went to strike, it was down the other end of the pitch. <laughs> you got one smidgen of an opportunity. You must bang. And I learned then there's different standards mm. that you had to be at. And I realised then, I'm not quite ready for Liverpool. Yeah, I might need a few years <laughs> in the lower leagues. But it was a great experience. That determination was always there, though. So when you're playing against Sporting away in Lisbon, here in the Bows first team at the age of 19, you must think, and you're getting write-ups from, from Peter Byrne in the, in the Times, you must think, all right, I've got the jet engine strapped me back here. This is only heading in one direction. And pretty soon after that, like it comes to a real juddering halt. Like it, Paul mentioned earlier, a broken leg now, you could be back in you know six weeks, three months, whatever it is, and you'd be nearly where you were. It's kind of like a, it's a different era when you break a leg back then as you did playing in the reserves at UCD. Yeah, I, I, was, I was playing the first time with a little strain. We was playing a Sunday. Billy said to me, have 20 minutes on the Saturday, see how you feel. I went up to UCD. The game was about two minutes on. It wasn't a dirty tackle. The lad didn't mean it. A ball got knocked, and I went to just nick it, and he came, boom, and he snapped me leg. I remember I was sitting like, on the ground like that. My knee was that way, and my toe was facing the west of the world. And I went, oh, Jesus. And I was in shock, no pain. Mm. And I said, Billy, it's broke. <laughs> and Billy ran over and threw his coat on it, you know? <laughs> and then the pain kicked in. So I remember the Doc O'Neill, Tony O'Neill. And I remember getting me on a stretch. I remember me dad. My brother Pascal, my brother-in-law Mick, and my mate and Mick's mate Georgie Dillon carrying the stretcher off. And I remember lying there and thinking, how long does it take to heal this? I didn't, I said, right, it's had to happen. 
And someone said, you'll be back in six months. I said, I'll be back in four. Right? And I never missed one training session at Dalymount Park. There was a gym underneath the stand. I never missed one game, one training session, or one reserve game, even when they were playing Tullamore or whatever. And I got a little plaque at the end of the year for, for them. But it never healed. It never healed. And I was going to break it again, put plates in. But eventually, after about nine months, I was able to put my foot to the floor. And I remember being in the park with Caroline and doing me little jogs. And Caroline said, come on, Rod. And I'd be saying, I'm my limp. And no, you're not. I was going like that. <laughs> Caroline never let me down. I remember sitting there. I remember I'd do me little jog around the pitch, well, around the polo grounds. I remember sitting there one day and Caroline's holding me. No, Caroline's throwing a bottom. I'm going, bang, bang, bang. And who walked by only the main man, Tullock O'Connor. And I looked and I went, geez, I wonder does he know me? And he looked at me and he goes, are you all right? And I was going, Tullock, you have to know me, you have to know me. But he didn't know me. <laughs> he didn't know me. And I was raging about that one. But look, I worked hard. I got back eventually. And uh, I made it. They, they didn't believe me back in Bowes. They said, no, he's gone, blah, 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 blah. Right, so I thought, I'm going to dedicate myself. One million percent for the whole summer. I have one last goal. I'll show Billy Young I'm not finished. And I got super fit. And I played in a tournament in Inchy Car. And Torlock had a, a team in it. I was playing in a bit of pre-season warm-up for some of the lads. And I won player of the tournament. scored a hat-trick in the final. And I went on the lash. Great night. Brilliant night. The floor collapsed in Ryan's pub in Queen Street. <laughs> <laughs> Next to we're all two for sure. <laughs> We were all nearly down the cellar, the floor went boom. And I remember, I remember Harry McHugh, who was in the team, saying, Rod, Tullock O'Connor wants to talk to you. That to me was like, was like handing me the biggest prize of my life. That someone of that stature, who just won the league twice for that long, and won it that year, would want to talk to me. It was just, it was one of the biggest boosts I ever got in my football life. Until he offered me 20 quid a week. <laughs> I would have played my nothing tour at the look. There you go. The, through all of that, through the broken leg and, and through the, you know, the coming up as a player, like Caroline was right there beside you. We have to go back to the first time that you invited her out. And the length... Let me say something before I go for the right. Because I might forget. I have to pay a tribute to Caroline. From when I broke my leg, right? From when I got released or sent home to England, from when Torlock saw me three or four times, right? <laughs> Everything that went wrong, from when Kinger let me sit in a new port for five years waiting on a flight. I was, I was in Dublin Airport two years ago coming home to Spain, right? No, I was going to sue me for a dairy, but there was, there's not a, we had a chat, right? And I remember uh, the flight never came. I was in Dublin Airport two weeks ago, and the flight was supposed to be 10 o'clock. 20 to 3, we're still in the airport. Carla said, the Kinger organised the flight. <laughs> <laughs> but no, uh, wait, what were you saying? I was going to say about the first You're time. Really here, I know. You? <laughs> I'm trying to keep you between the rails. It was the first time. Oh, you, yeah, yeah the first time you tried to ask out Caroline. Yeah, and every time, right, first there, first at the end of bed, and I woke up the soldier from my leg all the time, right up, bankrupt, banks knocking at the door, right. I turned around, who was always there to pick me up, Caroline. I wrote the book and I read it, and I decided Caroline's a bleeding jinx. <laughs> <laughs> Am I in the spare bed tonight, Caroline? I... <laughs> she's the best. I have to keep saying that. She's the best. Roddy, Car Caroline will bring this She's just... Home, <laughs> <laughs> Caroline's bringing him home tonight. <laughs> 
Tell us about the time that you first tried to ask her out, though, because you, you, oh, you, yeah. you went to great lengths to try and impress her. Oh, yeah, she was gorgeous, you know. She was gorgeous. I remember seeing Karen when I was 15 at a bus stop. Mad, you know. And next of all, I seen her again. My mate said to me at the time, Nolly O'Connor, this girl, do you want to leave her home? I said, yeah. And she turned to the corner, it was the girl I seen at the bus stop, and I went, oh, jeez, this is brilliant. She's gorgeous, right? So I left Caroline home that night. Brilliant conversationist. Absolutely brilliant, right? Couldn't stop talking about me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm only joking. We couldn't stop talking. We just got on brilliant. And I didn't want the night to end. And then I was mustering up the courage to say, yeah, will you come out with me? And yeah, uh, I bottled it. That went down for five weeks. And everyone's saying, Rod, you all right? I said, I keep, and I'm in the mirror before I go, right, Carolyn, you look great. You're very intelligent. You're doing your leaving, sir. Oh, that's brilliant. Um, <laughs> will you go out with me? And I just kept fluffing my lines. But anyway, so on the sixth night, it was coming to uh, Valentine's Day, and I got it this time, and I walked up, and I said, right, Carolyn, I said, six weeks now, I says, would you go out with me? She says, absolutely, I would. You're absolutely gorgeous, and I idolise you. No, she didn't say that, right? <laughs> <laughs> that, no, no, but, but that in my mind, I was hearing that, you know? I was hearing that, I'm on a winner here, right? <laughs> but anyway, so Carolyn goes, of course he will, and I said, I says, Carolyn, can I have a kiss? Oh, no. Oh, no, 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 I don't know you. I don't know you that well. Now she can't stop kissing me. <laughs> but anyway, so, so we went down, anyway, and, I, and, and I, me first date, right? Me first date, right? Nullick had a few quid and he had this long leather coat. It was worth about three or four hundred quid back in the day, right? And I said, Nullick, I'm above me way here, punching well above it. Lend us your coat, trying to impress Caroline. So he left me the coat. Anyway, I arrived now at Devney Gardens to collect Caroline. We were going to pictures and across the body was the five sisters and the three brothers and they're all leaning out of them. Oh, Jesus. And Sandra shouts, Ma! That's your man, Collins from Cabaret. He's around years. <laughs> Don't let him go out with Carolyn. And he's wearing Nullick's bleed leather coat. <laughs> 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 so, Carolyn loves the old creepy feelings, right? That's why she can wake up beside me every morning. <laughs> but Carolyn says, um, we go to see the Omen in the plaza in Granby Row. Tim's the plaza in Granby. Oh, you're a yeah, terrified. Oh, I'm afraid of my life with ghosts and all that, right? So we went in the pictures anyway, so I wasn't taking the car off in case that was robbed. Right? Because Nully could never forgive me, right? I was trying to impress Carolyn, so I got in to see and he bought the popcorn and the ice pops and the whole lot, right? Practicing this for the week I was just got the arm over Carolyn's shoulder, right? So I'm looking at this creepy film starts. And I can't look at so I slide down behind the fella in front of me. I'm looking at the back of his head, right? I don't want to see the screen. That's about 15 minutes, my arm is gone. Leaving <laughs> Norma cut. You could have cut it off. But the sweat was bathing on me with the leather coat. <laughs> and I'm saying to Carla, you enjoying yourself there? <laughs> oh, but look, it was it. It, it was a good audition for 47 years more than hell. <laughs> but look, it worked out. And thankfully, Caroline, you went out with me again. And thank God she did, because she's kept you between straight and narrow from, from God back then to, to, to right now. And she's almost a character in herself in the book. 
she keeps you she's like as you mentioned there any down points in, in, in your life and there's been a few she's always been right by your side and she's been the first to say it'll be alright tomorrow's another day brilliant only for Caroline and you know what as I say to Evan I've no fear of any man I have no fear of any man nobody in the world but walk into Caroline with a few points <laughs> on you <laughs> Honestly, I swear to God. So I never done that. I never walked in with a few. No, no. I never walked in with a few. I got a skinful, so I was really numb. <laughs> now, Caroline, and, you know, is my best pal. I love her to bits. I love Caroline. I fell in love with her today, Mary, and I love her more today than, than that day. She's my best pal. No, she is. She's there with me. I haven't lived the most perfect life. Caroline sat with me, sorted me out many times, but always guided me and always, always, always told me, you're good enough, Rod. Whether it was a player or a manager, don't give up, Rod. I believe in you. And Carolyn had brilliant jobs in Guinnesses, brilliant jobs in Bordgosh, Stirling, Winthrop, all high-end jobs. And left those jobs to follow me to England, to, to, to other countries. Not because she's, she's weak or she's silly, because she's strong. And I, I got most of my strength in everything I've done from Carolyn coming and saying, don't mind them. Someone out there is going to give you a job. And still to this day, that's where they get off, Caroline. She's a brilliant character in the book. <laughs> we'll get a lawyer on in the morning, lads. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was just going to say, Richie, like, you know, one of, the, one of the other surprises I didn't mention earlier was that this is this has ended up being a love story as well. Like as well as a football story, it's a love story. And Roddy, Roddy and Caroline, they're inseparable. Like they go out for dinner, you know, like twice a week, and people come up to the table and they say, "What do you What do you think? What can you possibly say to each other after forty? What? How many years of marriage? Forty-seven. No. Forty-seven years of marriage. Forty-seven, like, years, you know? together. 47 years together. Uh, but they absolutely revere each other. They don't just love each other. They revere each other. And um, that was one of, that was one of the, the lovely things about writing this story, you know, to see that. But, but Caroline uh, just stuck with him through absolutely everything. And she's the strength. And Roddy, you know, in the book, there's seven or eight really, really unlucky breaks Roddy gets during his life. But the lucky break he got was meeting... Caroline at 15 years of age. It's an extraordinary story. Um, one, of, one of the wisest men I ever met in my life is Tony O'Connell. He's a man I could just listen to because he doesn't speak a lot of words, but every word has substance. And every time I see him, he goes, how's Caroline? I don't know how that girl put up with you. And, and, he, and he says, she saved your life. Yeah. And in effect, she did. You know, now torture me as well sometimes, you know what I mean? <laughs> Caroline, don't start polishing that halo, yeah, now, you know what I mean? <laughs> but, look, I got lucky, and I'm happy, and I've come to this stage in my life of great kids, brilliant kids, great grandkids, I couldn't be a happier man, it's brilliant, everything's going great, you know? And you've got a book out now as well, by the way. Oh, come here. <laughs> it's unbelievable. I mean, my partner rang me up, I thought, right, we'll write a book, should write a book in bed before you go to sleep, you know? <laughs> Every day for about eight months. I'm oh, sorry, every Friday for about eight months. Scones. I got jam on mine. Paul got jam and fresh cream. Double and four. And Paul's had to go into the microwave for four seconds. Right? Four seconds. No, 40 seconds. Because Caroline broke her neck in November. 
right, and she had to be convalescent upstairs when Paul had arrived. Karen said, no, oh yeah, no, Karen had the house speak and span, right? Downstairs, toilet, polished everything, towels, the lock. Karen go down, who used that toilet downstairs? Paul Howard's on the way, Jesus Christ. I'm mortified. But anyway, so Karen, Karen be upstairs, Paul had come in, and uh, so me and Paul had sit down. I, I, I know. I got real posh at the start, right? I put two lovely four-story chairs in. I set the logs like a Christmas card. Like, with candles everywhere. It was a chat show. <laughs> All we were showing was a bottle of wine and holding hands. <laughs> and I, I was thinking Paul's used to all this, you know, the aristocrat now from the south side. So, so Paul walks in, he looks around. He says, what's this all for? I said, a bit of peace and quiet. Wine going into the madness, he said. A fair play. Paul had kids climbing over his shoulder while he was doing the book with me. To be able to do it with Paul, I trust him, right? Trust him. He's way with words. Like, in the con- context tense. That a, is that the word? Contents? Contents, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> the content of the book. Where I gave Paul, right? Paul has softened it, glamorized it, and put a massive, massive professional touch on it. Right? I was offered many times to write books. I was going to write it myself, Paul. And you know me with litigation and solicitors and all that. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been in Eason's on the 6th of October. Yeah. It would have been in Mount Joy by the 7th. <laughs> <laughs> but look, it was the best thing I've ever done in my life. The crack we had, but the professionalism of Paul, his awareness of, of, the, of the, just see a spark somewhere in me. You could see a little twinkle in his eye. My cabaret eye was watching his eye. Right? <laughs> you see a little twinkle, and he get me on a roll. And I go into a little world of my own. And I told Paul every single thing in my life. The first confession I made since I was 12. And he hasn't had, hasn't had any psychotherapy, hasn't had any therapy yet. <laughs> Paul used to leave my house, go straight on the bench. <laughs> I've just left Ronnie Collins. <laughs> I need to see a psychologist. <laughs> Paul, it's not like you need it, right? But in case there's ever a need for a pension, there's yeah. got to be uh, a part of you that has the offcuts of the bits that didn't make the book for whatever reason. Oh, yeah. That's on the floor, and you're like, I will auction this off to the highest bidder and make myself a mint. Well, do you know what? You're, you're big, as a, if, when you ghostwrite a book, your nightmare is that when uh, the, the subject reads it, they'll decide they'll get cold feet about lots of the stories. So that's my fear. I wrote, you know, I, I wrote up the stories and I gave the proofs to Roddy and Roddy took them away to Spain and he said, I love it. And he didn't ask me to take anything out. And it's very unusual for a sports book in that it's, it's the truth. Like that's the, you know, like a lot of sports books, they, they, they're, you know, they present this polished version uh, of the author, you know, of the sports person. This book... It's warts and all. Actually, I think Roddy is he's hard on a lot of people in it, but he's hardest on himself, I think, you know. And, you know, there's, there's parts of it that were excruciating for me to write, and I don't know what they were like for Roddy to read. I'm terrified he's going to say to me, I didn't read it now. <laughs> but, but I know he did, and, I, like, Roddy read, I think, I think you read this five times or something like, you know? 25 times. And well. that's very unusual, like to, to have that level of engagement from the subject of a, of a, a you know, ghostwritten autobiography is, is very unusual. So 
what was, was what was the excruciating part, if I may ask? Uh, well, just just how tough he is on himself. You know, just you know the, the mistakes he made. Uh, Johnny Giles, for instance, and uh, wrong turns he took along the way, and that turn you took into Mayo's that day when you became, you know, the manager of Carlisle United again, and all that kind of stuff. You know, it was. Um, but but Roddy didn't want a thing changed. You mentioned John Giles there. A, a thread throughout the book that I only noticed towards the end is you've managed to curse out future Ireland managers without knowing you were doing it at the time. So John Giles has come to you at one stage when you're looking to you know, get back in the game and Rovers have an offer for you. Uh, when you came back from England as well, there's an offer from Brian Kerr and Pats and to which you said no. And there's obviously like your own set twos with Stephen Kenny and so on. So when you're managing Bowes as well, if you were to know you were to cross so many future Ireland managers or ex-Ireland managers at the time, do you think you would have approached things differently? No, I mean, I didn't. I never went after any manager, to be honest with you. But I, I had this thing about, I loved playing. I just loved playing. And I didn't think I should have been picked because I was better than the other fella. But I just wanted to play. And the night with, with the youth international team, I was in all the shape, as they call it. Any coach here will know. Set pieces, throw-ins, all sorts of movements. Went to the hotel the day of the game. Team is named. And I'm number 12. And I'm sitting there, you having a laugh? My, half my building site was at the game. All my family was at the game. Jeffrey Collins, Jim Collins, all the Collins, the O'Rourke's, my brothers, Pask and the whole lot, everyone turned up. And I'm going, how am I going to explain this? So do you know what I've done? I got up and I just walked out of the hotel. And I walked home to Cabaret, put my civvies back on, and I paid 50 pence in. I remember going in and all my family and friends were up the stand. And my dad said, what's going on? I said, dad. I'm not sitting on that bench. You know what I mean? And that was it. But it was a stupid thing to do. But I don't have a tour like as well. The, wor the worst one ever. <clears throat> I'm playing for Crusaders up the north of Ireland. And Tony O'Connell, right, was, was the main man. And we used to go to his house in Glasnevin. He drove us all up in his big S class mark. And I'm full of beans, you know. Laces, ornament, boots polished. <laughs> in bed at seven o'clock, eating me pasta. Practicing my goal celebrations and all right. I got in the car full of beans. Tony's just pulling down the hill. He goes, Son. I says, Yes, Tony. He says, I'm giving you a rest today. I was in bed at seven last night. What are you on about? <laughs> ah, no, no, no. You looked a bit tired on shoes. We played a midweek game. There's no, nothing tired about me. I ain't playing. No, we're giving you a rest. So we stopped at the lights, come to the end of the hill. Right? And I said, Pull the car off. The lights went, Pull the car. I got out of the car. About five cars ahead of us, start walking down. Lights go green, car's clear. Tony comes rolling down beside him in his big car. And he goes, rolls the window down, he goes, Rod, get in the car. <laughs> I'm walking beside him. <laughs> the door of his S-class, Mark, so boo. I remember the corner of my eye looking, there was a dinge that size, and I went, yes, about two grand's worth of damage there, right? <laughs> and off he went, but he forgave me. And we made up. But that was me. I hate being dropped. I just love playing, you know? That's the one thing as well, that, that, that like throughout the book, like obviously you had a, your site career as a plasterer and working on sites and working on some of the best known sites in Dublin. Like you were playing football, as you mentioned earlier on, for peanuts. So it had to have been for a love that kept you going out there week after week. I never got well paid for football. Never. Never. Because it wasn't, like when I went to sit with people, 
except Torlock. Torlock was the master. I never learned so much how to deal in contract talks other than Torlock O'Connor. But when I went to see, I'd say, must you take on board? If they said 100, that'll do. And that's all it was. I'm not a money man, full stop. But I loved playing football and I loved being involved with good environments. Like people say, you're getting 100 there, but you can sign for them for 150. But they're all gargglers. They're messers. They don't want to win. You know what I mean? I want to be always in a winning environment. And that's what drove me on. But I just loved it. It was brilliant. Brilliant it was. I think that might surprise a lot of people is that in the book it comes across how professional you are in your approach to the game. Like a lot of people see Roddy Collins, the person out there, and they might think you're like a, a bit of a party animal, somebody who enjoys being out there on the scene and meeting and greeting and all that kind of stuff. But when you were a player, you were deadly serious. And when you were a manager, you were deadly serious about how you wanted your players to prepare. I can safely say with my hand on my heart, from the day I made my debut in League of Women Football to my last game, I never, ever, ever took one drink midweek. Christians, funerals, weddings, never. <clears throat> I didn't believe in that. I believed in getting this physically right, giving every ounce. That got me through. I wasn't the best player in the world. But I think, you know, as Bunny Fulham said, he described me one day, a big old rough type of a young that could score goals. I was a little bit better than that, but that's what Bunny said about me. I was hiding behind a pillar. He was laying bricks on the building site. He's the only man didn't send me away. He was at Coventry. He was sending everyone away to Coventry. I said to a fella, ask Bunny, was Roddy Collins any good? The plaster was behind a pillar. Was Roddy Collins any good? <laughs> Big old rough type of a young that could score goals. That was me. <laughs> so I put myself a bell. I mean, it's hard for me to say how or who I was as a footballer. I would have done my best. You'd have to ask Noel King who signed me, and I, and I thank him for that, and Torlock who signed me many times, right? And other people, who, Brian Arkins who signed me at the, at the end of my career when my legs were gone for Whitehall Rangers. People that believe me, ask them what kind of a player I was. It's very hard for me. Uh, throughout your recovery from the broken leg, there was one period where you seemingly became an arch goal scorer. Like you were getting your way back into the game with Bowes Reserves and suddenly, seemingly, we're, we're banging in the goals for them, Rods. How did that go? I'll tell you how that happened, right? And anyone that played with Bowes, and there's a few here tonight, when you come up the tunnel into the dressing room, there was a, 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 like an extension phone on the wall. And I was walking up one day after reserve game, B-team football, whatever you call it, walked up the phone, and people hello, yeah, the independent. Where's independent, yeah. What was the result? 3-0. Who are the goal scorers? Colin's got to trade him. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's true, right? Every home game, I was up that tunnel standing beside the phone, gardening. <laughs> what score was it? 401 or Shamrock Rovers? Who's got my balls? Collins. <laughs> I was at the work one day in the building site, and a fella comes and says, You're a goal machine, he said, because you just put your name in the paper on the Monday. You're a goal, about 47 goals <laughs> in 12 games. <laughs> Oh, look, like the Forest Bear certificate going away. I tried everything. Sometimes you need a little edge here and then, you know, but look. Yeah, your Wikipedia page still says you're two years younger than you actually are. The what? Your, your Wikipedia page says you're two years younger two than you years actually younger, are. Yeah, that was when I went, I went to uh, Mansfield. I was 25. I got a Forest Bear shirt to say I was 23. Just turned 23. So any manager will tell you, especially taking some from World England, a 25-year-old... Where was he? You know what I mean? 23-year-old, he's been out with a broken leg. He's been in England before. We'll give him a chance. So I got a contract. I've done a, a trial. I'll talk. 
Tolick said, yeah, you can go on two weeks trial. I went, oh, brilliant. Went over, got the, the, the offer of a contract, rang Torlock full of beans. All right, Torlock, yeah, how are you? I done great. I scored uh, five goals in one game, right? I done great. Oh, that's grand. When are you coming home? Oh, I'm never coming home, Torlock. <laughs> oh, I only let you wait for two weeks, Rod. And I went, Jesus, Torlock, I'll never forget it. I told the manager over there, you get me for three or four grand. Torlock laughed at him. That's not happening. Right, he needed a new extension on his house. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I said, I'll bluff Torlock. And you can't, the master, Silver Fox. I met him on the car road and I sat in the car. Torlock doesn't talk when you negotiate. He goes, mmm, um. <laughs> And I'm sweating, trying to convince him to let me go. So I said, Torlock, so you're not moving on this? No, I want 15,000. Right, I said, that's it. Keep your football club. I'm going to take up professional boxing. You'll be a great boxer. I <laughs> <laughs> wasted my time with that one. So in the end, Torlock done what was right for me. I went as a 15 grand player and I got treated like one. And the worst Torlock said to me, he says, Rod, if you got for three grand, they'll treat you like a three grand player. And it was the best advice ever. And off I went. But look, it's not a sad story. It's life. It's football. It's people get injured all the time. Some people don't. I got unlucky. The leg broke twice over there, essentially. Broke twice over there, yeah. Twice over there. Unbelievable. And you were doing that initially as well without Caroline and without Sinead who had come along by this stage too. So you're on your own trying to forge a new career in England and doing it pretty much solo and trying to manoeuvre your way around a kind of a new environment as well. Well, the thing about it is when you're 25 and you're putting around with 21-year-olds because they think you're 22, just turned 23, they're like, oh, Jesus. So I had to say to Bugsy, me pal, put me in with the men. And I went in, and I have to be honest with you, I've been in many dressing rooms. Look at me. <laughs> Wikipedia. I've been in many dressing rooms, but the intimidation of the League Two dressing room. If people, kids want to make it, a fellas coming down at a kitchen too to get their mortgage. And I remember going in there and thinking, I walked straight in, I disarmed everyone. I walked straight in and I went to the first fella and I said, How are you doing? I'm Roddy Collins. Went around every single one of them. And I knew by the time I got back to my seat, there was two or three of them wasn't having me. And I sensed it. So I had my hands full here. Then I broke my toe in the first week, my little toe. Here's this big post, big heart, centre half of a building, or centre forward of a building site. They'll be going to come in and batter everyone in League Two or the fourth division. And I broke my little toe. Jesus, mortified. So I was a little bit of that. Anyway, started to get a little bit restless, missing Caroline, missing Sinead, my first child. A fella caught me out the training pitch one day. I knocked the ball to him. He didn't move. I went past him, and he goes, Gaffer, paid a record fee for him. And I looked at him, I thought, and he wasn't that good, you know. And I was seating, I was going mad, you know. And I was missing Carolyn and Sinead really badly then, because things weren't going for me. Went in the dressing room afterwards, I remember sitting, I was talking to Neville Chamberlain, drinking a cup of tea, and all I could see was him. <laughs> Mr. Wonderful, you know. Bang, the cup went flying, smashed over his head. <laughs> you. I said, and the exact words I said, see you. If someone spoke to me in a building site the way you did, I said, I'm here to try and make a living for my wife and my kids. And I said, you're speaking to me like that? I said, you'd get a bang of a shovel on a building site. Now me and you, outside. Well, he never turned up. He didn't come out. But the manager brought me upstairs. I thought I was going to get a fine and a telling off. And Ian Graves said to me, that's why I signed you, Irishman. He called me Irishman. 
don't know if he's Tara's Irish, but anyway, he says, <laughs> see, that's why I signed you. I want you like that in the pitch. And I tell her, hold on a minute. Torlock had believed me that I could play. That had a bit about me. He wanted me to go around like a battering ram. But it, it is what it is. It's a me factory. I wanted to make the best I could for Carolyn, for Sinead. And, you know, we battered on. We kept trying. We never, ever, ever tried. I never stopped. Because you bounced around Trying. a little bit then as oh. well. But you, the, the end of your tenure at, at, at Mansfield kind of comes to a bit of a sticky patch because there's a new manager in there called Brian Eastick when you're recovering. Oh, that was Newport. Oh, Newport, so pardon me, yeah. yeah. So when you're at Newport and Brian Eastick is there and oh, you're on your way out, you kind of think, ah, this guy's leaving. I'm going to have a new uh, lease of life here. Well, I, I went to, to Newport County. There was a story between that. I broke my elbow. My first game for, Steve, for uh, Cambridge United. And the manager fancied me. He says, Rod, I just need to see you play two or three games to tell the board that you're fit. I've been on a, a bit of a groin injury. First game, I ducked ahead of the ball, fell a ducked under, came down, and my elbow popped out there. And I sat there, and Paul educated me on a certain situation when people think, can anything get any worse? And I start laughing. I go, Jesus, can it get any worse? So I cut the, the cast off. I went got the surgery the next day. It was only a replacement. Put a big sort of a, a semi-cast on it. It was a game choose, and I got the landlord to cut it off. I went out and played, and I went to hold the fella off, and that pain was excruciating. The tears were tired. I had nothing. I had no house. I had nothing. And I had a broken elbow, and I thought, jeez, I'm in serious trouble here. I ended up at Newport County through a recommendation. Got a contract there. So Eddie was going great in Newport County, <coughs> and the manager got sacked. New manager comes in. Didn't want me around, right? I was on good money, and he said to me one day, can you see me in my office? One of these fellas with the tan, right? About six stone is all he was. Now they're always looking in the mirror, and he runs like that, they're always doing that. <laughs> so he called me in, and he said to me, we're going to offer you 7,000 to retire, right? And I said, you're having a laugh. I'm not retired. No, I thought still going to play for Man United. I'm not retired. And he said something very vulgar to me. You know, I no respect for him. He said, as long as you have a hole where, where I won't say it, you'll never be a professional footballer. And I said, we'll see about that. And I, went down. And I was trying to get over my injury. Two weeks later, he got the sacry. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's in cleaning out his office, right? Knock, knock on the door. All right, Mr. Eastick, yeah, all right. You're gone, are you? I'm going, yeah. I said, well, as long as you have a hole where you, you'll never be a manager. <laughs> oh, no. It gets better, right? It gets better, right? So I go, well, oh. sorted him out. Two weeks later, a new chairman, he gets reinstated. <laughs> 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 I'm gone. So there was, there was loads of, look, come here. Anyone, there's football, real football people in the room. And they know the hardships, like Arno Callahan's being through the mill, Kinger's being around, Torrance managed, played. We all know Paul Bourne, Jesus Christ, Paul Bourne could write five books about football, hardships and stuff like that. But look, it's what we... No one dragged me into a football dress and said, oh, I loved it. And see, even the knockback, say, right, I'll prove it, I'll prove you wrong. And you came back and, and you tried to prove people wrong when you restarted your career back here, but eventually it takes you up north. And it's at a time when, you know, this is early 90s, when we're heading towards the start of the peace process in earnest. But before that, it's a really vicious time in terms of uh, the sectarian violence that's going on up there. Did you have any kind of qualms about joining? It was Crusaders first at the time. Did you have any no. qualms about going up there and, and furthering your career, even though you were travelling up and back? Well, I was playing for Sligo. 
And I believe Sligo could have done well that year because they finished third, I think, and I saw I think we could progress, but it wasn't happening. So I got a phone call of Tony O'Connell, right? I never met Tony before in my life. I knew of Tony, everyone knew Tony. And he said, will you come up to Crusaders? And I thought, that sounds like a running club to me, you know? <laughs> Crusaders. I thought, is this, is this where I'm at now? <laughs> I mean, three years ago, I was lining out in Old Trafford. <laughs> now I was running around some running club, right? So I thought, should I go up? Tony collected me in the big Mac, big Cuban cigar, flamboyant, brilliant man. Great man, I love the man, right? In the car, made me feel special. We'd sort you out, good wages, brought me up. There was about 200 people at the game. They were second bottom of the league. And I thought, ah, Jesus. But you know what? I made the decision. I walked in, I'll never forget, I walked in the change room, or in the, in the, like a little reception area before you go into the change room. This big six foot four monster, shoulders with that table, limped over. I'm Kirk Hunter. All right, big man, how are you? He says, uh, what about you, big man? Blah, blah, blah. I'm going, great, yeah. So he brought him around. Do you want a wee cup of tea? Brought him around, introduced to everyone. That, that instant, I knew I wanted to be there. I never felt hospitality like that. Right? And this is from a man from the heart of the Shankill Road, from a, a family of deep tradition of loyalism. Right? And here he was, accepting me. And so I said, Tony, I'm in. And it was the best decision I made, other than Simon talking that loan, and King of that Rovers, anyone else here that signed me? <laughs> but the best decision I ever made in the latter end of my career, going there, it was absolutely brilliant, and I loved it. We trained in Dublin, which was handy. We went on a Saturday, back in Dublin Saturday night, we still have a life with Caroline, and, it was, and we were winning most weeks, it was brilliant, absolutely. But when we were at Crusaders, we had a cohort of people come up, Robbie Lawler, um, Arnold Callahan. Big John O'Cleary, we were treated brilliant. There was never any undertone, there was never any sectarianism or bigotry towards us. But we knew, we went in, we played the game, maybe one or two shandies, and we were gone. Right? But you could go to, to, to like, Porter Down was a very hostile ground to go to. But, but like, you, you get abused as a player and as a manager from supporters. Right? But it's normally only verbal, and you can take it. But sometimes it got a little bit physical. I remember one time I was suspended. We were playing Linfield. I'm coming off the pit. Out of the stand there. They come around behind the goal. The Linfield supporters are there. Come around behind the goal to go in the dressing room, greet the lads coming in. And our keeper, we were nipping, took at the top of the league, took off a brilliant save. And I went, yes. And I got a punch in the side of the head. And I looked around. And this fella had a big red head in him. Right, and I thought said again, I have a boat and killy bags or something. Right? <laughs> Some fell out the shanker. Oh, yeah, so I ran at him and bang into the crowd. Thankfully, the RC pulled me out, brought me. I'd have been battered. But it was, it was a brilliant experience. It was. But people didn't realise. Like, you'd go up. We, we've often been pulled over knocking a cloy. We'd be taken out of the car, stripped the rims of the car, keep you in the, in, open the bill, just, just to antagonise you. You know, the rifles would be there in the hole. And it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, it, it was uncomfortable. But we never got exposed because Tony brought us in. Hardy Curry was the main man up there and he, he was the top man. In and out, play a football and, and sort of divorced from the other stuff. When you went to Bangor though, it kind of seeped in a little bit more it seems. That there was, 
you're in a very staunch Protestant area at that stage who weren't necessarily as welcoming to the Dubliner from down the Dublin Road. Well, it was a staunch area, but it was a very affluent area. It wasn't like, uh, you know, it wasn't as aggressive, but there was another tone. I, I got the job, walking off the pitch, uh, the manager gets another job, Rod, and they go, will you take the job? I had no ever inclination of being a manager or coach. Didn't mean it. I love to crack out and play and blah, blah, blah. Of course I will, no problem. That was always my answer. I'm driving home, I've Ricky McAvoy, Mark Kenny, John Swift. I don't know if Paddy McDonough's with me. I'm going, no problem. These are bleeding lunatics. How am I going to tell these how to play football? I remember going up for my first game. I'll never forget this. And I practiced all week. I've never done a public speech in my life. I practiced all week in the mirror. I'll walk in and I'll go, right, everyone sit down. Here's the team, blah, 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 blah. Right? Easy into it. Got lost on the way up. Arrive about 30 minutes before kickoff time. The chairman told everyone to strip. Didn't name the team. I walked in. 20 pairs of eyes all glued to me. And I went, I'm going to Jack's. I'll never forget it. I had a bit of a moment. And I looked at the wind in the Jack's. If I had been six inches bigger, they'd have been still sitting there waiting for me. <laughs> I was gone. I was gone down that road. But I overcame it. I turned to what came natural to me. I turned to aggression, right? And I walked and I picked out the main man. And I said, see you. I never looked at him and that was me. I was out of jail straight away. So I eased into that and got through it. And I got three wins and two draws and they gave me a two-year contract. And then I realized after I signed it, they all hate me. Not the players, but uh, Barney East would come in to help me. And I used to have a cup of tea with Barney. And he sent me one day in his house. He says, Rod, I don't know how you're still in that job. The boardroom hate you. And we knew why. And then they sacked me one night. And that was the end of Bangor. I never ever wanted to see a football ground again. I didn't want to see another football. Sick of it. They were so sleeving about what they'd done. And then, as I always say, never again. I'm in bed one night. Torlock O'Connor rings. How are you, Rod? How are you, Torlock? Pose were building a new stand. I told him in for this. I got to go a few quid out of this one because I was building at the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Torlock goes, Would you like to get involved in, in uh, Bowes? Come down and here's me. Yeah, do I price for this new stand? Oh, no, no, no. The manager's job. What? I hadn't seen a game in three years. So I don't know. Whatever I believe Torlock and, and Tony O'Connell had me, I'm indebted. Till the day I do, because I wouldn't be sitting here tonight. It wasn't without breaking that opportunity to show what I could do as a football manager. So thanks for that, Torlock. Because you had a big job to do when you got in there, because Bowes were struggling at that stage. They were heading for a relegation fight, essentially, when you took over. Bowes were in serious trouble, right? And when I went in, there was a malaise around the place. It was like a social club. And there was no, no authority there. There was no... It was like... Ah, yeah, it was like a group of players were bigger than the club. So I thought, I'll go in here, and I seen it up in uh, Drada when I was a player. Right? It didn't work out because no one took control. And we played a few games, and I could see a few fellas sneering at me. And they weren't having me. I remember I called, we were beaten by, I think it was Sligo, and we were in serious trouble. Not because of the performance or the defeat, you can live with that, but I could see the attitude. This is relegation attitude. So I called the meeting. I remember Caroline saying to me, uh, John F. Kennedy, I think it was, used to put a blue suit on, snow white short, and a red tie. So I said, right, I don't need a chalk pinstripe suit. 
I arrived in like Don Bladen, Carly, I only hit the dressing room, right? I walked in, all the lads are looking at me. I said, no one's strip. No one's strip, I said. So I went through and there was a, a kid there who his father had been the manager. I, I, I pulled him. I said, would you mind leaving the dressing room because I don't want to offend you. Great lad and a great player, but I couldn't walk after his dad. He left. So I went through the merits of every single player, one by one, and I told him, you'll do it for me, and this is why you're finished. You're finished. You'll do it. I went through everyone, straight as I, as I seen it. And that was it. I went to town around Tony O'Connell. How are you, Tony? Ah, how are you, son? Sunday morning. I was telling him, I'm at the throwing seven players out. For fuff, for fuff, for fuff. Calm down, Tony. So he says, are you serious? I'm 100% Tony, I said. We stick with them. We're getting relegated, 100%. Get rid of them now while it's early doors. We can rebuild. And I said, Tony, you can back me or sack me. Fair play to Tony. Some people say it's the maddest decision in football. Proved to be the best. He said, I'll back you soon, but don't you get us relegated. And <laughs> <laughs> I'll be blamed on it. So we marched on anyway. But anyway, it came down the season. And I'll never forget Tony again. This is a funny one. Well, walk him, I'm walking. Brought in Paul Bourne. I have to tell that story first. Go for it. I have to tell Paul, right? <laughs> I played for Bangor on my debut day. This kid, about 18 years of age, was walking around the pitch. He owned the ground, right? Streaks in his hair. Looked, looked very impressive. A bit of a sunbed tan. Going around. Everything was great. Comes over to me. He says, are you playing today? I says, yeah. But I thought he was playing with us. I says, yeah. Who are you playing with? I said, Crusaders. All right, I'm at the sign of a banger. Paul says, what are you getting a week? I said, I wonder. I'm getting 350. So the way the way he walked around the pitch before the game was the way he played the game. He absolutely controlled it. As I say in football, he had a cigar in his mouth. 18 years of age. But anyway, Paul went up and with Glasgow said he scored goals against Rangers. Legend. Everything's gone great. Then it goes a little bit pear-shaped. I got to a game with Torlock O'Connor to the run and track. The dog in, in what's that place? Harles Cross. And I'm looking. I see this fella, and his arse was bigger than this sofa, right? <laughs> but he was brilliant. He was brilliant. I go, that couldn't be Paul Bourne. So I, it was Paul. Paul, what's the crack? I'm on trial here. They're not even giving me expenses. Come on, down to Bowles. I went to the board. Paul, no, you're not having him. I had a plaster and come. I put him on the wage bill. I said, Paul, come on. And fair play. My brother Parcel trained a professional boxers at the time and trained himself for boxing at the time. Right, Paul, you're coming running with me at 6 a.m. every morning. And Paul went, and he never missed a session. So we lost about two stone. So he was only three stone overweight by then. Right? <laughs> but he was, but when he was running, Paul Bourne, and I know you're here, Paul, and I've said it many times before, Paul Bourne was never out of the top three in any running session. Whether it was a 10K, sprints, whatever it was, he had an engine, he was strong. And he'd done it with a laugh and a smile. So... I said, Paul, you're fit enough now. I'm going to play against Waterford in the cup. Down on Waterford. Do it for me. And they let me sign you. So I thought, right. Caroline's sister, Martina, was a dressmaker. I took a pair of shorts home out of the club. I said, Martina, do me a favour. Bang an inch on each side of them shorts, will you? Right. So Mar Martina said, 
two inches. I said two inches. So Martina put two inches on both sides of the shirt. <laughs> and I'll never forget it as if it was today. I did the dressing room. I said, right, and I named the team. I said, Bonesy, you're in. Thanks, boss. I said, come here. Stick them on you. Look real skinny. And Paul being Bonesy went down. And don't really done on banger. And what he always done with me, he put on a master class. And after the game, the boys opened the higher etchings in the club said, you can sign him. And that was it. The rest was history. And Bonesy is a man I love. Right? Now, I never hate. say love, hate. I love him, but he tortured me. Right? And then we was brilliant. We got through to the end of the season. The biggest game of the season against Cove away in the playoffs. I didn't sleep for a week. I was getting ulcers and shingles. My hair was falling out. I was all over the shop. Right? And we go to the day of the game. Training the night before the game, Thursday, whatever. One of the players comes up, he goes, Boss, can I have a chat, you know? I said, oh, Jesus, what? Be careful, I'm trying to call him the wedding love. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Don't worry about that. There's loads of fish in the sea. You're a lovely looking young player. You're very respectable. I know loads of girls in cabinet, have you? Just trying to get him going for his football match. I didn't care if he was a bachelor for the rest of his life once he played against Cove, you know? So he's one of can't sleep about. My goalkeeper, someone shunts him in the back. Bing, Celestar claim. Rod, I'm not going down. Why? With a bang in the back. Screw on the bench now. Go against me, claim. So here I am. I'm down. One fella who's going to be a batch of dressing his life, crying his eyes out. One fella claim that someone's shearing company. Right? And the only hope I have left is Paul Bourne and Kevin Hunt, the two star men. So we drive down anyway, and we always stop on a long trip. Stretch the legs, buy a newspaper, a bottle of water, maybe a few wine gums or a few java cakes. So they all grab the bus. So I'm stretching my legs, thinking, picking the team 20 times over. I goes in and there's Bonesy at the deli counter, you know. <laughs> he goes up. Here he is. Yeah, love you. Throw a bit more black pudding on that there with you. Yeah? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm that much behind him. <laughs> is that enough, sir? No, I'll ask you a few rashers on as well, will you? Have you got a runny egg to just top her off, have you? <laughs> Brilliant. Why oh, taps him on the shoulder? All right, Bonesy. Super duper, boss. Super duper. <laughs> Super bleeding duper, he says. We're playing tonight. He said, so it's not late o'clock. I said, that'll be in your belly for three days, Paul. And he got all annoyed, right? He was hangry, right? <laughs> what you want me to do with it? I said, do what you want me to So we gave it to the bus driver. He was still eating and bleeding cold when we arrived. <laughs> And the funny, the funny part was, and this is true, and I swear in my life, Paul said to me, and by the way, boss, if I collapse in that pitch tonight, it's your fault. <laughs> well, he didn't collapse. He was brilliant. And we won 5 nil, and it was just, the relief was brilliant. You highlight Paul as, as being one of the three, there's three players throughout the course of your career that you say were just gems and above everyone else. He's definitely one of them. Paul Bourne, right, was... One of, without doubt, was and is, was one of the most gifted, talented footballers I've ever come across. And, and that's being on trials in England, mixing with the, the higher end of it. Paul had a football brain miles, miles quicker than anyone else. He had an ability to pass a ball. His knowledge of the game, he's, he's, he's just unbelievable. And, could just, and he's, he's, how he presented himself... I was a little bit partly, but always fit. 
but always with a smile on his face. And when we were in trouble, and there, there is times that dressing him when you're a bit concerned, in walks Bungie, lifts it, lifts the roof off everything, takes the pressure off everyone, not afraid to take a penalty. We'll try and score up McCormick kick if you ask them. One last story. We could be here all night about Paul. Another one of Paul's, right? Paul, it's over. Go and sign my pats. They're going mad for you. Pats were going mad for him. Right? Go and sign my pats. Right? So next of all, he's gone. I'm out to conserve to read me paper on the Monday. Stressed it on my head. Next of all, oh, Jesus, no. There's Bungie. Oh, Paul, please. Oh, just give me one more chance. Paul, no. Carla comes out. Carla knows. Everyone knows Paul, right? Carla comes out. Oh, Bungie, how are you? How are you, Caroline? Do you want a cup of tea? Yeah. Will you have an egg sandwich? Yeah. Throw a bit of black pudding in as well as sausage. <laughs> so, Bonesy gets his way into conservatory. I'm, I'm, I'm reading the paper, angry and thinking, how am I going to get out with this one? So anyway, I said, Bonesy, now have a chat with Caroline on your bike. Caroline, what size shoe are you? Size five. I'll be back in a minute. Comes in with a pair of Gucci shoes, worth about 400 quid. Try them on, love. It's like Cinderella, you know. Carla sits down, gets the shoe on. They're gorgeous. Bones, you'll see in the morning. Go on. That's, that, <laughs> you, Paul, I love you, Paul. Right? You can't fight with you, right? But you're brilliant. Absolute legend. I'm, and I'll say it here in public, and I mean it. Paul's major problem is his heart is too big for what he can deliver. Paul will tell you, and take this on board, by the way, I'll get you two tickets for Celtic Rangers. I'll meet you in the, the, the hotel in, in Glasgow, I've stayed in it millions of times. Be there at seven o'clock. Two weeks later, you'll be still there. <laughs> <laughs> but Paul would have tried so hard to get him. But look, what a player. What a player. It didn't take long to turn things around at Bose, to be fair. Like within a year or two of you arriving, you're, you're in Europe, you're, you're beating Aberdeen, you're off to Kaiserslautern, you've got a hell of a squad led by the likes of Kevin Hunt and Glenn Crow. And Paul mentioned beforehand, like you regard him as a, a better tactician than he probably gets credit for. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, you're, probably, <laughs> you're probably the best place to talk about your tactical genius, Roddy, are you? <laughs> well, I'm not a, geni I'm, I'm not, I'm not a genius. No one's a genius, but I'm not a fool, I'm not a tick. And football is not about everyone running around 100 miles an hour and everyone loving the manager and everyone having a love in and you might get a lucky break or a set piece and win a score. No, tactics is about managing games, looking at oppositions, managing your own players, like getting the best out of them tactically. Like you might have a slow full back or a slow winger and a quick full back and you work it out tactically. And I learned that off Noel King, the best tactician I ever. And I, I, I admired Noel when I was about 13 years of age. Now it's about 45 then, but I admired him, right? Because he was so far ahead of the game. And I learned that now that it is about tactics as well. So I, I looked at opposition players and worked out the best method. And I learned off Pascal and Stephen in the box because it's a very tactical business. And I learned off Sean Edwards. So I learned tactically from different sports how important it is. And when we went to, when we went to uh, Aberdeen, Tactically, I had a plan that would help. I'm not going to go into it and bore people, but I also knew. No, I won't. No, I won't. You'll read, you'll read it in my book. You'll read it in my book about tacticians. But I had a plan. I had a plan to tactically frustrate them. I'll tell you one tactic. When we get a corner, nobody goes forward. 
absolutely nobody crossed the halfway line except the player taking the corner and he kicks it out for a throw in. <laughs> Trevor Malloy. And Trevor goes, I don't have a team meeting. I know you go, and I go, Dave Hill calls me. Dave was brilliant. Dave was a man, right? Dave goes, Rod, can I have a chat? Is he here? I says, yeah. I said, give them the ball, they're never to throw in. When they go, we'll squeeze them in. Right? So we kick it out and they're like, what's going on? So we didn't get many corners. Then they scored. Then we got a corner. We went, right, right lads, let's go. And by the time that happened, no one on their side had tuned into Toy. Boom, Shawnee Mar buried one. Then I went, Roy, let's go two up front. Not go back. Let's throw Crowey on now. So Crowey and, Crowey and Trevor went on up front. So instead of us going one all, goal away from Europe, they're going to, let's go, and we got a winner. So tactically, and then if you want to hear the tactic, will I tell you? Yes, Roy, please. we played them in the second leg. Uh, Darren O'Keefe was sent off just before half time. They played with three central defenders. We played with one striker and they left three centre-halves. So in effect, we had an extra player. So we crowded in the middle of the park and kept the ball. And we told Trevor, I told Trevor, hold her up, get free kicks, do what you can to bring us up the pitch for an L set piece. That's tactics. And you had to have the players to see it out, and there was no one better than Trevor Malloy, the cutest, absolute, most clued-in player they ever managed on and off the pitch was Trevor Malloy. So that's tactics. But motivation is good as well. Four one down against Rovers in Santry. I goes in. Pete said to me before I went in, Rod, they got four chances. We got four. They were lucky with two of theirs. We were unlucky with ours. We could have been winning four two. So Pete gave me an idea. So I went in. The lads were sitting. The lads said exactly what we, what we thought. Went out. Took a left back off. Played with a right back, two centre backs, and no left back. And I put Trevor on as another striker. And Mark Rutherford could run 10 marathons in one day. So he covered up that side. We beat them 6-4. And people thought it was brilliant. It was this, it was that. Tactics had a bit to play in it. But the players carried it off. So, yeah, motivation, tactics, and a lot of luck. The, the, the context for that match as well is that Roddy was told at halftime that he was sacked. So, you're, so you're four, he's 4-1 four down. Uh, he knows his job is gone. You're going home. You're going home for good. I'm getting sacked. One of my allies in the boardroom, a great man, pulled me on my way to the, to, the, to the dressing rooms. He said, Rod, you're going to be sacked at the final whistle. So I thought the best tactic to sort this out, all my knowledge of the game, right? Everything I've ever learned. I went into the Jackson and said, Dad, give us a help out here for Jesus' sake. <laughs> and he did. We got a bit of luck. And that saved me bacon. So if anyone sees it on a video afterwards and... People have put it up. Richie's been putting it up and that. I hugged every single player that day. And people thought it was because of the result it was. It's because they saved me bacon and gave me an extended period to try and achieve what we eventually achieved, and that was to win a double for Bows. Roddy, loads of people have been uh, scanning the old QR code there beside us and, and asking questions. Uh, one of them here was... Uh, from Paul, who's out there in the audience, and he was asking, um, seen as a load of, well, when I was still on Twitter, I think 80% of my output was videos of you from the Rod Squad. <laughs> um, they wanted to know, did you have any regrets about allowing video cameras in to document your time at Carlo? No, none at all. At the time, at the time, Lewis Horse called me up. 
We're going to do a documentary now. I thought this is starting in Carlisle. This is ending in Old Trafford. This is going to be the best documentary of all time. And I let them in. And do you know what? After a while, you don't notice, honestly. And when you're intently involved and in a relegation battle, you don't even notice your own wife and kids, to be honest with you. You know what I mean? You go so into it. So did I regret it? No. Do we regret it? Some of it. You know, some of it I do. Especially when I said it's managed Man United and Ireland. Right? It's alright to have ambition, though. It was an ambition, of course it was. But I gave out some ammunition there to get slaughtered in town, you know. <laughs> Just fronted up. But no, it was great. It showed the hardships of football. It showed the hardships of a family trying to make it. It showed the, the loyalty, the dedication. And what Caroline done as part of the backroom team, Cook and Christmas dinners. Caroline was my, how can I say, psychologist in the club. Every Wednesday, Caroline put a pot of stew on and invited up all the players. Willow McDonough here tonight, one of my main signings, Richie Ford and all the lads, Desi Bourne, Peter Moore, they all come up and they'd all sit in. And I'd go out and watch reserve games or go scouting players. I'd come out that night, right, fill me in. Desi Bourne's in love, right? <laughs> Richie's not happy with you, Rod. Bournsy was there for a while. Bournsy rolled him in, sell the pot. <laughs> right? And I, I, I could go in and, si- and simply go, yeah, right. And I knew what was going on. Well, I, I'm going to hang Desi Bourne out, right? Desi Bourne said to Caroline, how do you know when you're in love? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't tell you what Caroline said, but anyway. <laughs> This, this was all part... See, people see football clubs on football and they forget the human aspect of it. All human beings, mm. all people trying to make it at that level, giving the heart, putting the heart on the play. You might have 8, 10, 12,000 people there. Things are going great. They love you. Things are going wrong. You can't even walk into a supermarket and they're running away from you. You know, and, 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 and I used to walk in and I also learned this from Torlick and he probably goes, where, where, where does this all happen? Right? I'll tell you one thing. I come up training one night with Torlock. It's been lumping on a building site. Torlock said, there's a ball. I go over playing the corner. And I'm going, oh, jeez, I'm dropped. I said, no, I want to train. You're not training. Go out and play in the corner. I had fiddle with that ball, desperate to find out what was going on. Torlock picked me the next day, the next game. So I learned. Torlock knew I was crafting on a building site. Wanted me for a match day. So when I walked into a dressing room, I'd look round. You have a plan. You do your plan at 8 o'clock in the morning, right? You have it all planned out. We're going to walk on this. This happens Saturday or whatever. You walk in the dressing room, you look around, you go, oh, Jesus, no. He's drunk or hungover. <laughs> plan B, back out. <laughs> right, what are we going to do now? Little things like that, but there was one story. I come in, and there's a fella called Mark Summerbell who played Premier League games for Sunderland. He was, or sorry, Middlesbrough. Great player. He was on a cock when he was a kid. The quietest fella you could ever, ever meet in your life. The nicest fella and a brilliant, a brilliant defensive midfield player. And all he ever said was, Why, hey, man? Why, hey, man? I'd say, All right, all right, Summers. Why, hey, man? So I went to him one day and I goes, All right, Summers. He didn't even look up. He just kept looking down, right? So we're out on the train, the pitch warming up. So I grabbed Richie Forden or, or Willow McDonough, one of the lads that was always, always in my corner, always looking at me. And I goes, find out what's wrong with Somerville. Well, he gets the feedback. His mother uh, left him, or left him, it was a breakup. 
And the only thing she left was this little rabbit. Right? And the rabbit died. And I'm going, we're in a relegation battle here, you know? <laughs> He's worried about a dead rabbit. I'm worried about getting sacked, right? So I thought, what am I going to do about this? So the lads are all training away as Bugsy's taking train all that. So I jumped in the car, down the pet shop in Carlisle, walked in and says, have you got a rabbit? Willow, you'll tell the truth. Have you got a rabbit? Your man goes, what? I said, have you got a rabbit? Mind your Carlisle, everyone knows you. Hey, I'll give you a rabbit, yeah. So I said, give me that rabbit there. So a big black rabbit, big huge ears, right? So he gets the rabbit in a cardboard box, like a potato box, right? And a little flap on the top, so it's a good breed. I didn't want to bring him back a dead rabbit, you know what I mean? So I goes in and I gives the bus head. Here was our man drives the bus and does the kit and all that. So I said, bus head, come here. So I'm going into the dressing room. I'm going to have a little chat with the lads. When I rap on the door, you walk in with the box. So I goes in, right? Sit them all down. Right, boys, I said, we need to stick together here. We're all in this together. And we all look after each other. And if someone's not right, we need to find out. We need to help them. So, Summers, I'm at the finding out your problem, right? And I went bang, bang, bang on the door. The door opens, right? The bus has put the box down. You couldn't plan this, right? And the rabbit pops up. <laughs> and all the lads start singing, bright eyes. <laughs> and Summer Bell looks at it and starts crying, my rabbit was white, that's black. <laughs> And that's an absolute <laughs> true story. Excuse me, language. <laughs> Willow. So that's 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 the thing about that's the thing about looking after people and and getting the best out of them. And I learned that. I'm gonna keep saying Torlock because I'm driving them up. But I would have died for Torlock and Jimmy Brannigan when I was a kid and Noel King as well. I would have died there because I know the men they are. People see them, but behind the scenes they help people. Never turn anyone down that needs a little bit of help. If it's coaching, education, if it's a little help out to get a house or whatever, or, a, or a, you know, to stick with you when you're on your knees, they're the people. And that's what it's about. It's about people. It's not about numbers. It's not a me factory. It's about going out there, making you feel the best you are. If you're 7%, and that's all you'll ever be, well, I want you to be 7% every week. And I'll tell you how good you are. And that's what it's all about. And that's how you win trophies. That's how you win games. And that's how I've done it at Bowes. I look at the pitch on the wall in Bowes. How in the name of Jesus we won a double. It's unbelievable. <laughs> I had the maddest group of Motley crew you ever met. I'm not joking with you. I won't go into a bright fellas that. I'd one fella could run four laps on the pitch. So I'd say to them, get a rub while we're doing the laps. I'd another fella who couldn't do keepy-uppies in the little square, you know, just coach and stuff. Get the ball off the deck. I'd say, tie your lace quick. Then I'd say, get the ball off the deck. So it was all about protecting people, looking after them. And that, to me, is management. Your coaching stuff, forget about it. You need it, but man management is what it's about. I want to get to as many uh, questions as I possibly can. This is one for both of you, Paul. I'll start with you. Uh, Lord willing, the film rights to this are sold. And uh, you get a few more quid in the back burner. Who, who's playing the big man? Uh, De Niro. You know, okay. <laughs> talking to me, huh? There's a great ending to the film, by the way, which De Niro has to play the scene. Me and Roddy, about three months ago, we're at Luton Airport, right? And um, 
we're going over. Uh, we were going over to see Roddy Junior, who's uh, who's playing with Chesham, and uh, we're going to we're going to the club, and we're standing at Luton Airport, and we're waiting for a, a car to come and pick us up, you know. And uh, we, hear, we hear this row going on behind us, and turn around, and there's a guy. Uh, we couldn't understand him because he was from Eastern Europe, you know, but he's, he's huge. He's wearing a vest, just a vest. He's got muscles like bowling balls and he's in a rage. His eyes are popping. There's a vein in his forehead and he's shouting at his wife and his mother is trying to drag him away and behind, hiding behind his wife, there's a little boy, he's about five years of age, and he's hiding behind her leg, and that's what killed Roddy. That's what got to him. But at the corner of his mouth, he just said to me, look lively here, Paul. <laughs> right? And I said, what, what do you mean, Roddy? And he says, I think we're going to have to take this lad down. Right? <laughs> I, said, I said, Roddy, I, I don't know what you see when you look at me. <laughs> right? <laughs> I'm not a fighter, like, you know, words are my weapons. Like, if you, if you want me to satirize him, uh, I'll take him out in the paper in three weeks' time, like, you know, but I'm no fighter. And Roddy said, don't worry about it. You just kick out his knee and I'll take him down with a punch. <laughs> and that's the Dublin 4 version of it. I said, Paul, see this tower rack? This is what I said, Paul. If he puts his hand on that girl, I'm going to knock him out. That's what I said. <laughs> Thank God he did. He was like a beast of a man. You know? uh, what a couple of obituaries we would have made, though. <laughs> There's a bunch of questions in here essentially asking the same thing. There's a lot of people asking, would you like to get back involved with Bows? But in a more general sense, is there a desire on your behalf to get back into management oh, as a whole? Yeah. Oh, I applied for a job on Sunday in League Two. In League Two, I applied for a job. And from 70 applicants down to four for an interview. And I can't name the club, so no, I, I never, ever, ever, ever wanted to be, not be a manager. Never. But I'm not going to go into it. It's a great night. Vindictive people. People put me down, blackballed me, tried to destroy me. But you know what? They didn't. They didn't get me. Off the ball. Second biggest cheer was Ronaldo warmed up. The biggest cheer was when Ronaldo came on the pitch. There is still this fixation of Ronaldo is coming onto the pitch and he buys into Subscribe that. now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app.